Good morning, and uh, glad you're with us again as we go through the Word. Uh, this morning, we're going to go ahead and pick up where we left off yesterday. Uh, we have been doing a prophecy brief, which is where we try to connect current events through the lens of biblical and eternal truth. And uh, we began looking yesterday at uh, answering a question, is this the beginning of the end? And uh, the short answer is no, it's not the beginning of the end. The beginning of the end, uh, practically speaking, happened in Acts chapter 2, where uh, Peter, coming out of the upper room, uh, being filled, uh, being over Uh, shadowed by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit fell upon those believers in the upper room. They came out, began to speak of the glories of God in in various tongues that uh, the the crowd had gathered there and understood in their own languages. And uh, in the course of that uh, first message of the church age, uh, Peter begins to uh, connect it uh, this event that was taking place right then with a the prophecy out of Joel chapter 2. And in uh, in describing that or in quoting that passage from Joel chapter 2, uh, it, he mentions how in the last days God will act in such a way as he is right there in Acts chapter 2, <clears throat> ultimately culminating in the call for all men, uh, who, for anyone who comes to believe would be saved. And so um, the beginning of the last days as we would typically define them uh, would would start at that point. You could argue that from the very beginning, once uh, man fell, uh, God began to march out his plans and purposes to redeem man. But, um, but you know, in terms of specifically speaking of last things, end days, eschatology, we really look to Acts chapter 2 as sort of the beginning point of that. And then we begin to understand uh, what prophecy has said about these things uh, as we move forward through time and see how God has been working. And so that's what we're trying to do as we look at prophecy in our current day is to consider how the events that are happening around us both today and in the years that have led up to today, how those things uh, ultimately compare to what the scriptures describe as being the last days. And uh, we also mentioned yesterday too, and I always probably think it's a good idea to reiterate that we want to be careful not to sensationalize things. Uh, I am not a sensationalistic person by nature. Um, I don't see uh, <clears throat> every little thing as having some big giant connection with <clears throat> with end times prophecy. For example, I, you know, we want to be careful when we point to various things and say, oh, this is the mark of the beast or whatever. Now, that doesn't mean that certain things that are going on today or technologies that are being developed couldn't be used as the mark of the beast when that time comes. But we want to just be careful not to jump on every single thing because eventually our message loses its poignancy. It's like the boy crying wolf. You know, you do it so many times, people lose interest. And then when it finally does come, they're not wanting to listen anymore. And so um, just want to be thoughtful of that. Uh, I do think we need to be watchmen on the wall. I do think we need to be mindful of, of the times in which we're living. But we just want to make sure that we keep it biblical, that we don't um, exaggerate or, again, sensationalize things and, and sort of move beyond what the scriptures say or maybe make presumptions um, that aren't entirely founded. So we just, I feel like a, a, a real measure of humility as we look at these things is, is, um, uh, is essential, really, I think, for us to, um, to approach it with the right heart and to approach it with, uh, with clear thinking. So that's my intention as we go through these things. I'm not the final word on any of this stuff, but I do think that uh, it's important for us as average believers, typical Christians, uh, just gathering around our Bibles, whether it's a morning devotional time or whether it's some in-depth study time that we set aside, to come at it with a desire to understand and to understand clearly and not to cloud those things, uh, either with um, sensational ideas or even with preconceived ideas. I think we just want to make sure that we look at the scriptures for what they say and draw our conclusions from that. So 
That being said, uh, yesterday, uh, or last time, depending on when you're watching this, but um, when uh, when we got toward the end of the the, the, t- the time last time, we started to just mention, I mentioned quickly uh, that there are differing views on how eschatology plays out. And in particular, I was pointing to a couple of views. Uh, my own is what would be called a futurist view, and that is that when we look at the events described in the book of Revelation, or as we're going to start with today in Matthew 24, we're talking about, in large part, events that are yet to come. There is a direct connection to what's going on immediately, and there are some things described in these passages that deal with the time and uh, directly around, uh, uh, almost immediately around the time they were given. But the scope of what's being said uh, clearly begins to lead us beyond just those times to look at events as they will happen down the road, uh, even future to us at this point. And so, uh, in particular, I was looking at a couple of views. Uh, again, mine is the futurist. Another view that is uh, embraced by some, uh, maybe many actually, uh, but uh, certainly uh, another uh, idea that's been embraced is the idea that many of these things, if not all of the things written of in the book of Revelation, took place uh, on or around 70 AD when the destruction of the temple in the city of Jerusalem under Titus Vespasian. And so uh, the question is, did, are the things we're reading about in the book of Revelation or again in Matthew 24 and like passages, Luke 21, uh, are these things dealing specifically and only with those events? Uh, and I would suggest that on the one hand, yes, there's clearly a connection with what was written in those times to those people. For example, the seven letters to the seven churches. Uh, clearly in John, uh, in Revelation chapters one through three, Jesus tells John to write the things uh, that he sees, the things that are, and the things that are to come after these things. And he says to write these things, the Lord does, he tells him to write these things to the seven churches uh, that are situated there in Asia Minor. And of course, we have the churches like Laodicea and Ephesus and so on, Philadelphia and, and, and Sardis and Thyatira. And so we have these churches here that are, that are specific bodies of churches. They are literal bodies of believers there in the first century to whom the letter was first written to. Uh, and, and, Arguably, everything in the book of Revelation was written to those churches. Uh, however, uh, the question is, does that mean that nothing in, that le- in, in the book of Revelation, uh, or for that matter, is not the significant portion of the book of Revelation, not only written to those churches in the first century, but does it pertain only to those churches in the first century? I would say no. I think the context is clearly those believers. However, the scope of the letter goes far beyond Asia Minor, far beyond the time in which those believers were living. Uh, some would take exception with that, but I, I think linguistically it makes sense when you read the book. I don't think there's any uh, reason why we can't see that uh, in there, uh, much like Matthew 24 uh, or Luke 21, uh, which are very, uh, you know, are, are the same in some respects, the same message given by Jesus, Luke 21 and uh, Matthew 24. Um, however, Luke contains information that Matthew doesn't, Matthew contains information that Luke doesn't, and both of them contain some of the same information. And so uh, whether this is the same message given in different instances uh, or whether they were entirely different and we have them in their entirety, or maybe we have a smaller version in Luke or whatever it might be, um, the things that are said in there speak clearly to what's about to come. Luke, for example, uh, as he explains uh, you know, um, that discourse, uh, that Jesus shares, um, he focuses more on what's about to come and what we do see in 70 AD when they're going to be 
uh, you know, uh, under the sword, under uh, ultimately what we come to understand as being, again, Titus Vespasian's, uh, Titus Flavius Vespasian's attack on Israel and, and uh, Jerusalem in particular in the temple. Um, that's clearly in view. However, even there, uh, Jesus begins to, uh, or continues by talking about things that are still yet to come. Um, you know, the Son of Man coming and every eye seeing him, as, as, as also says in Matthew. Uh, well, clearly those things haven't happened yet. And so the scope of the teaching has an immediate application, but it also reaches beyond the immediate as well. And I would suggest the same is true uh, in the book of Revelation. When we get to chapter 4 and beyond, in particular chapters 6 through 19, uh, we begin to see things that go far beyond the scope of Asia Minor uh, or even the time that they were living in. And so, and clearly we haven't seen the coming of Christ yet. So not all of those things clearly were meant specifically for that body, those bodies of believers. And so we have uh, in that, that camp of that view that these things were fulfilled in 70 AD, um, just quickly before we move on, we have what is called the preterist view, which is the idea that all of these things written in the book of Revelation, all of these things in Matthew 24, Luke 21, uh, these things all pertain to that period of time uh, that ultimately culminated in 70 AD. Um, and then the book of Revelation, those same passages there uh, also uh, would not speak of a future time, but would speak of uh, things that were fulfilled in the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple in 70 AD. Uh, a partial preterist view, which is a little bit different, and uh, that would say that there are a couple of things, uh, I presume like the second coming, that don't fit into uh, 70 AD, and so therefore those things are yet future, but otherwise, by and large, those things are already done. Uh, preterist, pret, the, the root of that word meaning past, and so the idea there is that what we're reading in these passages happened in the past and are not something that is awaiting yet future fulfillment. I would take it, I just don't take that view. I, I, I think that... Uh, it requires the book of Revelation to have had to have been written prior to 70 AD. Otherwise, if it's written like it's generally held in 90 AD, then clearly it's not referring to things that happened in the past. It's John is speaking of future events. Uh, but I would suggest even if it did, uh, even if John did write in 70 AD, and there's a reasonable case to be made on some points with that, uh, I still don't think that, uh, that that precludes the idea that the letter is not only written to an immediate audience, but also has a farther scope in view as you read through the book. Uh, the cosmic events that are described in Revelation and also in Matthew and in, in, uh, in Luke, those things didn't happen either. And so there's, there's, reason to, uh, there's reasons that I doubt um, the merits of, of that particular view. But again, out of respect, people have differing views. And I think as believers, it's important for us to acknowledge and respect that. Um, and, and just understand that not everybody's necessarily thinking the same way about these things. Um, my own personal views are not without some challenges as well, and so we have to just sort of wait and see what ultimately happens. But I do approach it, just so you know, uh, if, you're, if you're interested in following through on these things, that's the perspective I take, is that these things are future. So when we turn to Matthew 24, which I'll invite you to do, uh, I'm looking at these things um, from the perspective that they are yet to come. One last point I'll make on that, by the way. Um, uh, when, when we read the book of Revelation, uh, when we read Matthew 24, and we see the things that are spoken of here to these specific listeners, um, again, there is an immediate context to some of these things. Um, but if you are going to put in the scripture things about end days, things that were going to happen down the road, uh, and you wanted them to be told to those down the road, but you needed them, you know, needed, that's a clumsy way to put it, but God wanted them to be in that period of time when he was inspiring the writers of scripture, 
many of the things that are described here are said in the way that, you know, how else would you say them if you were talking to a future generation? Uh, and so they're, they're here during the time of inspiration and inscripturation, uh, but they ultimately can speak yet to future generations. And I don't think there's very much in the language on some of these things that would preclude that from being true. So uh, that being the case, I'm going to go ahead and dive into Matthew 24 for just a moment. And, uh, and uh, we'll start here for today as we talk about another one of the signs of, uh, of the last days. We talked yesterday about Israel's physical return to the land, and we also talked about the temple being rebuilt. Well, I'm going to touch on that today and connect it with another event called the abomination of desolation. Now, in Matthew 24, Jesus' disciples ask him, uh, what, uh, you know, when Jesus talks about the temple coming down and, and all of these things, uh, they're uh, wondering at that. And they asked Jesus, well, what are the signs of these things and of your coming and of the end of the age? And so Jesus speaks to those questions throughout the rest of the passage in Matthew 24 uh, and such. And so uh, here in particular, I'm going to jump ahead and, uh, and, and go into verse 15. But just prior to verse 15, Jesus is making the point, and the first point he makes of the characteristic of the last days is that of deception. False teachers, false Christs will come and will deceive many and these kinds of things. There's going to be lots and lots of prevalent false teaching, which is, uh, which is going to be another point that we'll come to after this. Uh, but I'm going to move ahead here to the idea of the, the temple being rebuilt and a particular event called the abomination of desolation taking place in it. Uh, so let me start in verse 15 here. Uh, where Jesus, in, 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 in beginning to, to pour out the, the, the way that the last days are going to look, he says, Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, whoever reads, let him understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains, and let him who is on the housetops not go down to take anything out of the house, and let him who is in the field not go back to get his clothes. But woe to those who are pregnant, those who are nursing babies in those days, and pray that your flight may not be in the winter or on the Sabbath. For then there will be great tribulation, such has not been since the beginning of the world until this time, nor ever shall be. And he goes on to say, unless those days were shortened, even the elect might not be saved. And so, um, but when we talk about now this idea of the uh, abomination of desolation, that's an odd term. We, uh, you may never have heard that term if you're not typically prophecy-minded or if this is kind of a new field for you to begin looking into. But the abomination of desolation, uh, prophetically speaking, is a very, very well-known term. It's a well-known concept. There's some debate about what it means, though. Um, the, the, the reference is to Daniel. Daniel's prophecy uh, in Daniel chapter 9, which we covered uh, in some... Uh, uh, in, in uh, not super depth, but we covered it in our previous prophecy series on the sequence of end times events. Um, but that that reference is to Daniel chapter nine, where uh, um, uh, a, a man who will ultimately make a covenant with Israel will, in the mid midway point of that covenant of that seven year period that that covenant covers, um, the presumption is that in making that deal with Israel, with signing that covenant with them, the presumption is that this will permit them, uh, it may be that it permits them to rebuild their temple. In any case, there clearly is a temple during that time because uh, this one who we typically call the Antichrist uh, will go into the temple and will ultimately uh, set up the abomination that desolates is essentially it. And I say set up uh, because this term abomination of desolation is used twice more 
later in Daniel, in uh, chapters 11 and 12, uh, where uh, there is this phraseology that there will be this abomination set up. And so um, if we take that to just simply mean as it's said, then there is some thing that is put there that ultimately uh, uh, is, it becomes this abomination that makes uh, desolate or that desecrates the temple. And so um, the abomination of desolation, when did it happen or has it happened yet? Well, there's a couple of times in the past from our perspective and even from in biblical uh, times, there's a couple of events that took place that look like it. One was in uh, the mid uh, uh, 160s BC, when uh, during the Maccabean period, um, it's, uh, there's a period of time between the Old Testament and the New Testament in which uh, Israel uh, uh, revolted against Rome. And this is called the Maccabean period because it was under the leadership of Judas Maccabeus, a priest and general who ultimately led the people of Israel to stand against Rome as they sought to, uh, as they sought to put them, you know, under, uh, you know, further uh, persecution in that. But um, so uh, during that period of time, a Roman general named Antiochus Epiphanes uh, set up a statue in the temple to the god Zeus, and he slaughtered a pig in the temple. And this so infuriated the Jews that they rose up and ultimately drove out the Romans in that time to, and, and rededicated the temple. And the celebration of Hanukkah represents that period of time. Now, you might point to that and say, well, that sounds like the abomination of desolation. An image was set up there in the temple and it desecrated it. Well, that was an abomination that desolated the temple. However, in Matthew 24, which is after those events, Jesus still looks forward to that event. So he is saying that there will come another time where a similar event will happen. In other words, that was not it. Uh, so the next time something like that happens is in 40 AD, after Jesus is crucified, after the resurrection, in the earliest years of the church. Uh, and during that time, another Roman, uh, or a Roman emperor named Caligula, uh, Gaius Caligula, uh, hated the Jews and wanted to basically tick them off. And I'm, I'm being super simplistic about the setting on this. You can read history about this if any of you are students of the rise and fall of the Roman Empire. You know all this stuff already. But, um, and I'm, by the way, not a student of the rise and fall of the Roman Empire. I don't mean to sound like that. But, but uh, Caligula uh, goes ahead and he makes an order to so tick off the Jews that he's, he wants to have an image of himself set up in the temple. And uh, he sends his, uh, his Syrian general, um, uh, Petronius, to go and to make this so. And uh, however, the peasant Jews rose up and put up such a formidable front to stop it from happening that it actually, uh, they weren't able to do it. And eventually Caligula is assassinated. And so the order for this statue of him in the temple never takes place. The, the order is canceled essentially. And so it never takes place. Uh, move forward to 70 AD. Now again, this is where some say that all these things are fulfilled. However, if there's a consistency about the way that the abomination is generally viewed, uh, then 70 AD doesn't fit the bill, in my view. Uh, because there, uh, in 70 AD, again, Vespasian comes with his Roman legions and he attacks the city and decimates it, uh, including setting fire, the, the, his, his soldiers set fire to the temple, 
Uh, and as history goes on to describe the, the gold from the temple that begins to seep between the cracks in the rocks. And so the soldiers are pushing all the stones off of each other in order to get the gold out of there and bring back all the spoil from this conquest. And, uh, and Jesus' words are fulfilled in that there's not one stone left upon another, hearkening back to the beginning of Matthew 24. Um, however, why is that not the abomination of desolation? It's generally held up that it is because the Roman soldiers came in and by virtue of entering the holy place, desecrated the temple. Well, clearly they did desecrate the temple when they entered into it. Clearly they did destroy the temple and all of this. They did cause offerings to cease and all of that. However, there was no image set up in the temple. Now, this is again a point of contention or debate about what the abomination means. Is it necessary that there be an idol set up? I would suggest for consistency's sake, I think that's what's in view. Um, so I, I don't hold the 70 AD idea because uh, when you consider the way that that typically had played out previously or the attempts at it had been played out and you connect it with things like Revelation 13, uh, where uh, the Antichrist sets up an image to the beast or to the Antichrist. The uh, false prophet, I should say, sets up an image to the Antichrist to be worshipped. There seems to be something to this idea of an image being established. And so uh, I think it follows more naturally to see it through that lens. Uh, does that mean I'm absolutely right? Maybe not, but I think, I think there's, there's, there's strong merit to that. Another thing I'll add to it that I'm not being dogmatic about, by no means is this intended to be like the, the nail in the coffin to the idea, but when you look at Daniel's prophecy, it is, it's, it's interesting, if not significant, it's at least interesting that when Daniel interprets dreams, on a couple of or uh, in one particular occasion, there's the statue that Nebuchadnezzar sees in his dream with the succeeding kingdoms that follow each other that are represented by various metals, uh, starting with gold with Nebuchadnezzar, the head and, and such, but then down to iron mixed with clay and the, and the Roman Empire that is in view there. Ultimately then struck with this rock, not cut with hands, that is a kingdom that will never, be, uh, will never end. And that's of course the, the kingdom that Jesus comes to establish. Um, but in, in, that in that vision, Nebuchadnezzar sees a statue. Later on, when, uh, when Nebuchadnezzar sort of rebels against this vision and establishes a whole statue made of gold, symbolizing that he doesn't believe his kingdom's ever going to end, sort of stands against the God of heaven who gave the interpretation of his dream in the first place. Well, there's, when you look at man's perspective of these kingdoms, they're statues of, of various metals, but, but it's crowned with this head of gold kind of a thing. It's just man's perspective is something... Uh, kind of beautiful in a way. But from heaven's perspective, these were like wild animals and such. But from man's perspective, an idol is at play. An idol's in view. Uh, in, in 165 AD, an idol is set up. In 40, uh, 40 to 41 uh, in BC, in 41 to 41 AD, uh, there's an attempt to put a statue. In Revelation 13, there's a statue, an image made. Uh, and so I think there's a consistency of what's going on here uh, and I think there's something to be said for the consistency. Uh, it's not the nail in the coffin, but I, I do think that it's significant. And so I, I look to those things as well as the plain surface reading of the text and just wonder if maybe there isn't something to that as well as we come to understand these things. Well, um, and of course, in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, Paul talks about this one who will go into the temple and he'll declare himself to be God. He'll declare, he'll demand to be worshipped above all that is called God and all these things. Well, 
there has to be a temple for that to happen. That didn't happen in 70 AD. And so um, some of these things that are being described clearly still have a future date in view. And that's why I think that when we talk about the abomination of desolation, we're talking about an event and an element of, of end time prophecy that has yet to be fulfilled. And so, um, so I wanted to describe that as another event that will happen. So uh, my view on this, and, and, and by the way, when I say my view, it's not an uncommon view, it's an extremely common view but I'm just sharing it with you as, as the perspective I'm taking. That being said, what I, what I think is something that is going to happen in, in the future, if these scriptures are in fact pointing to that as I've described them, is that in the coming days, there will be a temple that will be built again in Jerusalem. By the way, there are plans for that temple that have been drawn up, multiple versions of it. Um, there is a, 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 a temple society in Israel that is preparing implements for, for worship during that time. Um, again, if you're minded toward prophecy, uh, the idea of them trying to, to get, and there's some rumors that they have actually gotten a red heifer, which is in, involved in purifying this place for worship and everything. There's, there's all of these things that are in motion for that to happen. Uh, if, if a leader, uh, who again, we typically call the Antichrist, if a leader comes along, signs a treaty with Israel that permits them to build that temple, I think that that for them will make it easy for them to embrace him as their Messiah. Uh, remember, uh, Israel is in unbelief right now. They did not receive Jesus as their Messiah when he came the first time. When he returns the second time, as it says in Zechariah and elsewhere, they'll look upon whom they pierced. Uh, Paul will go on to say all Israel will be saved. Of course, that doesn't mean every single, hopefully it means every single Jew at the time. But nationally speaking, I think is at least what's in view there. Um, when they see him, when he returns, there will be this wonderful conversion of, of the Jews to their Messiah, uh, who they did not receive the first time, but will receive the second time. Uh, and of course, this will be in the face of having been duped by this man, the Antichrist, who seems to have given them what they wanted in building the temple and giving them some measure of peace, but then violating that treaty midway through. Uh, and that begins, as we've spoken of before, the Great Tribulation period, uh, which, by the way, is also spoken of in Matthew, 20, uh, Matthew 24, Luke 21, this idea of this tribulation coming such as has never been seen before nor would ever be seen again. Well, what happened in 70 AD or any of these other times where there were, were, were revolts, these were tribulations locally. These were troubles there, but they weren't like the world has never seen. Uh, and so I think that this is still speaking of something future. So um, when we eventually look more into Revelation chapter 13, we'll look at the beast and the Antichrist and the dragon a little bit and this kind of a thing as we describe uh, further end times events, uh, we'll talk more to that idea. So that being said, let me go ahead and close for today and we'll pick it up again next time as we look then at apostasy that is running rampant in the world and will continue to increase even until the return of Christ. And so again, I would encourage you to go ahead and read those first few verses of chapter 24 uh, in, uh, in Matthew and then the first Timothy chapter four, second Timothy chapter four, uh, also allude to, uh, not allude, clearly talk about it. So we'll go there as well. But let me pray us out here. Father, we thank you for your goodness and grace. And we thank you that you love us so much that you've given us your word, uh, both to live, uh, to learn to live by in our day, but also to help us to turn our eyes up and to look at what might be coming down the road, uh, what certainly will be coming down the road. And Father, we just pray that, Lord, you would bless our study of Scripture, that you'd help us to be students of it, and that you'd help us to embrace those things that you say that we might uh, know you and know you well. 
Father, we thank you again for your goodness toward us in giving us these things. Father, in the days ahead, we pray for those who at this point don't believe that, Father, as things like this begin to unfold, it will cause them to, uh, in, 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 in mass, to, to, um, to turn their eyes toward heaven, to turn their hearts over to Jesus, to ultimately become followers and disciples of his. Thank you, Father, for all that is yet to come. And Father, thank you that one day very soon you're gonna come, you're gonna send your son to come and grab us and bring us as his bride home to uh, just enjoy being in your presence forever. There's so much uh, connected with this blessed hope that Father, our hearts just really just explode at the thought of seeing you. So Father, let it be so. Like John would say at the book of Revelation, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. Thank you, Father, in Jesus' name, amen.